You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Driving Law with me. I'm Kyla Lee, your host as usual. Uh, With us today is Ron Moore. And Ron is not just a lawyer, but also a toxicologist. His story of of how he got to where he is is incredibly interesting. And his expertise in particular, um, for all of our listeners, is related to cannabis impairment and the uh, absorption, elimination, and distribution of THC in the body. So a huge issue that we have a lot of interest in here in Canada. So thank you for joining us, Ron. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, any any time. I, I saw you, we met in Philadelphia, and I saw you give a presentation there that just uh, kind of blew my mind. Philadelphia was a great conference. I enjoyed meeting you there, and uh, I, I enjoyed putting on that presentation. Yeah, so uh, you were telling me before I called you um, about how you got into toxicology. Um, do you want to share that story for the listeners? Sure. Uh, like so many of my biology major colleagues, we all wanted to be doctors when we grew up. And at the nearing the end of my undergraduate education, I realized that I was probably not destined for medical school and was looking for alternatives when the university I was at had a nice seminar for those of us who were in that situation. And they had people from pharmaceuticals and biotechnology, and they had a speaker from the local crime lab come out. And I was hooked. I was fascinated by the idea of using my science education in a way that would help society and and solve crime and all that. So I went and did an internship at the local crime lab, was hired as a lab tech, and then ultimately hired by a different crime lab way back in 1989 as a forensic scientist and stayed at the uh, crime lab there for a little over 18 years. During the 18 years that I was there, I started in toxicology. I transitioned to uh, the blood alcohol section fairly quickly and was there for a number of years. And we did all of the blood and uh, urine alcohol analysis uh, for a fairly large county here in California. Did thousands of uh, blood alcohol analysis every year. Um, We also trained all the police officers in how to do uh, breath alcohol testing in the field and maintained all the breath alcohol testing instruments. And I also spent three years analyzing drug samples. I spent uh, a number of years doing firearm and tool marks, and I did uh, about six years of homicide investigation, and then returned back to alcohol as the supervisor of that section uh, until I finally left the lab um, in 2007. So you were getting, like, you were in toxicology right as they were sort of introducing things like the drug recognition evaluation and then the you know the blood and urine testing for drugs that would go along with that right now the the drug recognition expert program started in los angeles that was uh, a product of the los angeles police department and they developed that program back in the late 1970s it was formally adopted by lapd in 1979 and then they sought to expand the program and, and get it more national attention. They brought it to the attention of the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration here in the States. And NHTSA took a look at it. They adopted it in 1986, and the International Association for Chiefs of Police then uh, came in in 1989 
and that was about the time that I got into the crime lab. So that's when the program started going national was in the, the late 80s, about the same time that they were uh, doing some of the initial uh, work on standardized field sobriety tests. Wow. So did you did you get to be like right there as it was as it was becoming national and have some influence on that? Or was that sort of uh, outside the scope of what you were working on? Uh, I don't think I had any direct influence on uh, the DRE program and its development. It was developed largely by uh, a couple of sergeants in the traffic uh, bureau of LAPD that realized that they were having a hard time gathering convincing evidence in the DUI drug cases and were looking for a solution that they could develop to present to prosecutors. And at least initially, it was more police-driven than science-driven. Right. Okay. Now, in I was telling you in Canada, um, we're about to have cannabis legalization. And going along with that is blood drug concentration um, limits. So for anybody who's driving, um, a mandatory legal limit of two and a half nanograms per uh, 100 milliliters of blood of THC. And you were surprised by that number. Yes, uh there was initially, in, in the, over the years that we've been doing toxicology on marijuana, a lot of efforts to try to figure out a per se limit for THC intoxication because the people wanted it to be like alcohol. You know, alcohol is a, a, a model for impaired driving, and it's probably the most common drug people abuse, uh, and it impairs their driving and makes, uh, makes things unsafe. So people say, all right, we have a model already for alcohol. Why don't we just try and treat drugs the same way? We'll figure out what the amount of drug is that's equivalent to where we prohibit alcohol intoxication, and everything will be fine. And so there were a lot of early efforts to do that, and you know, numbers were brought up of you know, two or five or whatever the number happens to be, or zero tolerance in some places. Uh, but more recently, with more and more uh, toxicology having been done, We've come to the realization that you really can't put a number on intoxication from THC because there's so much variability involved. You know, picking a number and setting a limit, on the one hand, there are certainly people who could be impaired below the number. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, there are going to be people who are not impaired who are above the number. You now, THC has a very long half-life means that it goes away very slowly in, the, in your bloodstream. And the effects of the drug, though, typically only last uh, when you smoke it for, you know, three to six hours. So, you know, the next day you may still have THC present, especially if you're a chronic user, uh, somebody who is enthusiastic about smoking, uh, may have <laughs> THC in user. their blood for a, or a medical user, uh, may have THC in the system for a much longer time period beyond which they are suffering from any impairment. And so it seems like if the goal of the legislation is to reduce impaired driving, they're catching a lot of people that aren't impaired at the same time. Now, THC also is stored in your fat cells, so it can be... It is. Uh, THC is a very what we call lipophilic. It, it likes to be in uh, lipids or in fat cells. And so when you smoke THC... The THC levels go up very high, very quickly. You know, some people peak out even before they finish smoking. Um, some users will kind of titrate their dose as they're smoking to get the effect they're looking for, and so they may even peak before they're finished smoking. Um, but typically, you peak either while smoking or very shortly thereafter. 
um, at a rather high level, and then over the next 30 to 60 minutes, you drop as the THC is distributed into the fat cells, and then it comes back out over time, and so you have a much longer, slow elimination phase. So it's kind of like a two-phased uh, elimination. And so are people, when, when they have that, when they have that sort of, you know, second phase of elimination, are they experiencing, sorry, are they experiencing impairing effects from the, from the THC at that point? Does that affect them in any way? Well, it does, um, but only for a certain length of time. And so uh, one of the things that I presented at the meeting in Philadelphia was a congressionally mandated report on marijuana impaired driving. And one of the things that Dr. Compton reported in that study was that the most severe driving impairment seems to be about 90 minutes after smoking, even though the most significant uh, subjective effects, the feeling of high, happens very shortly after you finish smoking. So you can still experiencing the, experience the impairing effects of the THC even at points where the blood THC levels have dropped substantially because it's the THC in the brain that is causing the impairment as opposed to what's in the rest of the bloodstream. Right. And it takes some time for the THC to peak in the brain because of how fat-soluble it is. And how would you measure the THC in somebody's brain? Would you do like a spinal tap? or? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't think we have a way to do that currently, and that's maybe part of the problem with trying to figure out uh, what somebody's experiencing in terms of impairment from THC is that we can't get to the place where it's having its effect. Mm -hmm. And because the blood levels in the brain or the THC levels in the brain are going to be different than they are in the blood, uh, we're kind of at a loss uh, for having a direct measurement. Contrary to like it is with alcohol, alcohol is very water-soluble, and so the, the concentration is going to be pretty equivalent uh, throughout the body. And so we're, we don't have that same difficulty with alcohol. And alcohol is just so much more predictable than THC is in terms of, of quantifying its effects. You know, alcohol, uh, THC is much more subject to developmental tolerance. Do, now, do you think that part of the reason that alcohol is so predictable is because we've had so much more time to do research on it and its effects? Or is it, is it literally just inherent in the substance itself? It has to do with the differences in how the drugs uh, affect the body. Alcohol has a more physical effect. It's at a membrane level, so it gets into the membranes and affects the fluidity of the membranes. It may also have some effect at the GABA receptor, but most other drugs act specifically at some cellular receptor uh, in the nervous system or other places, but for the psychoactive drugs in the nervous system that has some normal activity. So, for example, there are drugs like methamphetamine that act at the dopamine receptor. There are drugs like THC, which acts at specific cannabinoid receptors, CB1 and CB2, in the nervous system. As you expose your body to these drugs, the body will change the, the receptivity of the receptors or the number of receptors, you know, upregulate or downregulate the receptors, and so it changes your experience of the drugs, and you develop tolerance to them. And, but because, like I said, alcohol has a more physical effect on membranes, 
it has that effect and it's more difficult to develop the, some of the tolerance to it. Right. And that's why you can see, you know, people who are, you know, the hardcore alcoholics who drink a Mickey every day or whatever the case may be, probably more than that. <laughs> if I think back um, to people I know, yeah. um, uh, but they still well, the, have the physical impairment. Um, right. But so there, there is some development of tolerance to alcohol. You know, I couldn't possibly drink as much alcohol as some people do who are chronic alcoholics. But by the same token, there are some things that it's just very difficult to develop tolerance to when you're dealing with alcohol. Right. And what about what about like the method of ingesting um, ingesting cannabis? Like with alcohol, I mean, really, there's only one traditional way that most people take it in. But with cannabis, people can eat it, they can smoke it. There's like the vaporized forms. Does that change how your body reacts to it and how your body processes it? Um. To a certain extent, when you're dealing with smoked cannabis, it goes in through the lungs. Uh, even the vaporized cannabis goes in through the lungs, and you get the the spike in THC blood concentrations. Whereas, if it's coming in through the gastrointestinal tract, it comes in much more slowly, and some of it is digested, so we don't get as much of it. But it still has an impairing effect on you. Uh, but that effect may be drawn out, um, and your THC levels will never get nearly as high as they do when you smoke it. Um, so it becomes more complicated to try and predict when and how much of an effect you're going to see depending on how the person ingested the THC. See, and I find that fascinating when you look at, you know, the government creating these regulations where they want to put a number on impairment. Because if you if you eat it, you might not even get to that, you know, we have like two offenses. We have a to use your American terms, like a misdemeanor and a, a felony. And at the felony right. level, you wouldn't get to, um, you wouldn't usually get to those levels eating the cannabis. So, but you'd, you know, in my own experience, <laughs> be way more impaired and for longer. Right. And that's the concern is that, you know, people who may have what we would normally consider a culpable uh, behavior or a culpable impairment wouldn't be caught by the law uh, because they're under what the statutory limit would be, and yet they're still potentially dangerous drivers. Um, but on the other hand, there are individuals who, you know, in their enthusiastic use of the product, uh, could have levels above that beyond which they're impaired. You know, I'm thinking of one particular study that was done on uh, a number of chronic users that were in a uh, locked uh, treatment ward and even 72 hours after the last exposure, when the THC levels had dropped down below that level, individuals spiked THC levels above that level. And one person at 72 hours spiked a level back up to 11 nanograms. Which is and crazy. So you would be at that point subject to felony, even though you hadn't had any for 72 hours and wouldn't theoretically be impaired at that point. Um, and does the brain, like when, when the person in that situation spikes back up to 11 nanograms, does the brain feel the effects of that, or is that all gone from the brain? Well, that's not entirely clear. Uh, they weren't doing impairment research on those individuals at the time, so we don't have any measurement from them. Right. There are some studies that show that uh, there are some residual impairment in chronic users for a long period of time. We're not sure if that is entirely due to lingering THC levels or if it's caused by some other lingering effect in the users. And there's also the question of how much impairment do you need to have before it actually makes a difference in driving. Um, 
because we can measure impairment in what we call driving-related tasks like divided attention skills and complex reaction time and things in laboratories that may not actually have a practical impact on crash risk. Really? Can you, can you expand on that? Well, certainly. Um, if you look at some of the, the crash risk studies, and I was actually just looking at three of them today, uh, there are a number of studies that have found that merely the presence of THC in your system doesn't increase crash risk. So, for example, the, in the report to Congress that mentioned one of the most recent major case control studies that was done in Virginia Beach here in the United States, where they looked at, uh, where did I just have that study? They looked at a large number of crashes, and over 3,000 crashes and about 6,000 control drivers, and estimated the frequency or the, the crash risk from both alcohol and from drugs, and they found a crash risk uh, from alcohol that increased with increasing alcohol level but for THC, once they'd controlled for the demographic factors like age and gender and alcohol use, there was no crash risk from marijuana. Right. So I think, yeah, I think you said something when, when I watched your presentation that the equivalent crash risk for being, you know, on cannabis is about the same as being like a, a male in your 20s. Well, and that's one of the, the, the things is that if we take the sober driving population not everybody drives the same. Um, <laughs> some individuals, like young male drivers, are naturally at a higher risk of getting into an accident just from being young male drivers, which is why they're so much more expensive to insure. Um, but if you control for that, uh, they also happen to be people that are more likely to use marijuana. You have to control for that factor because their crash risk would elevate marijuana crash risk estimates if we didn't control for that. So that's why it's important to properly control when you're doing uh, crash risk estimates. But that's not the only uh, type of crash risk study that can be done. There was another one that was done uh, back in, where's the study, 2013, where they looked at data from the fatal accident reporting system here in the States. They looked at over 1,700 crashes and over 3,000 control drivers and found uh, there again that there was no increase in crash risk from marijuana. And then another study looked at 2,500 crashes where the police officers had done an investigation and they reanalyzed those crash reports with an objective standard for what's called culpability, is who's responsible for the accident, who was at fault, mm -hmm. and determined that the people who had marijuana in their system were actually less likely to be at fault for the accident than the sober population. Really? Wow. That's amazing. So, you know, we should all just get high and are, drive then. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I'm not saying that. The you know, it's it's obvious that marijuana can impair driving. Um, there are lots of other studies that look at crash risk and lots of studies that break down driving skills into its component parts like divided attention skills that show us that THC does definitely impair. And the question is is just because it impairs people does it really make a difference once they get on the road? Because one of the things that we've seen is that um, people who are impaired by marijuana, a lot of the time recognize, realize that they're impaired and they try and compensate. They may drive slower, leave longer following distances, as opposed to the situation with alcohol where people don't generally realize they're impaired. One of the things that alcohol impairs is your ability to tell that you're impaired. Right. And so 
people above the legal limit oftentimes don't realize how impaired they are and they're ready to go out and drive and don't recognize it and don't compensate for it. And so they're much more dangerous out there on the road than the people who have had the, the THC who recognize it and allow for it. And as far as like the actual like sort of psychomotor performance um, and the, the physical acts of driving, as I understand, really the sort of most common thing that you would see in somebody behind the wheel who had uh, had marijuana or cannabis in their system is, is usually like just weaving within the lane. Is, am I wrong about that? Well, there's a, it depends on how you look for it. You know, there's been a number of studies that looked at, uh, for example, uh, DRE reports of uh, DUI marijuana cases and categorized all the different reasons why they were stopped. Oh. <laughs> and a large number of people end up getting stopped for speeding, um, and the cop walks up, smells marijuana, and they end up doing a DUI investigation. The person gets arrested. So speeding is very common, but uh, weaving is right up there with it. Okay, and, and is, is speeding like of, related to the cannabis, or is it just because everybody speeds? Well, I think it's just because everybody speeds, but as soon as the, the officer gets up to the car window and smells marijuana, they're going to do a DUI investigation. So you end up with uh, things that aren't necessarily being caused by the marijuana being associated with the marijuana because the officer you know, recognizes the signs of marijuana use and proceeds with the DUI investigation, even though that wasn't why the person was stopped. That seems like it would make it very difficult from like a sort of a scientific perspective to look at you know, look at all of that data and identify where cannabis actually affects somebody in their ability to drive and where it's just either officers using the, oh, he was weaving in his lane as a pretense to stop somebody, which we know they do all the time, um, or using sort of normal driving behavior as a justification. Right. And one of the studies that really hasn't been done that ought to be done is something like NHTSA did, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration did for alcohol, and look at lots and lots of, of DUI stops where, you know, you got people who we know are over the, the legal limit, and look at the reasons why they were stopped and the frequency with which those people turned out to be over the, the legal limit, and we recognize what the signs are that specifically relate to you know, inability to control a motor vehicle versus the signs that are not so often associated with being under legal, uh, being over the legal limit, like speeding. Um, but the problem we run into there is that since there isn't a good association between THC levels and driving impairment, you, you, we're back at that, you know, two nanogram, five nanogram problem that the number doesn't tell us whether the person's impaired. Um, so we can look at the reasons why people are stopped that end up getting arrested, um, but those inc include all the cases where the officers stop people for things that weren't suspicion of impaired driving until the officer got up to the, to the car and, and recognized signs of, of marijuana use. Right. And now you're in California. How California has legalized cannabis, or I guess illegally illegal legalized it? I don't know how you describe the, the state situation of legalization there, but... Um, what have what sort of outcomes have they seen in relation to driving and, and crashes? Have you been keeping track of that? Well, I know we're keeping track of it. I don't know that we've got good data out yet because it's still very new. And so it's going to be a little bit of time, like it was in Colorado and Washington, before we have some good data to see if it's made a big difference. 
But one of the things you have to be really careful about in evaluating that kind of data is, again, making sure we control for the frequency in the population because if there's a, a large increase in people using marijuana, just the normal background rate of accidents, you're going to see an increase in marijuana associated with accidents because there's that many more people just using marijuana. Right. That you'd expect, you know, it's going to be there. We're just so. purely random. They're going to be, you know, you'd be the same thing if, if everyone decided to be blonde. You'd suddenly notice an increase in blonde people having accidents um, <laughs> just because the frequency in the population went up. Right. So, you know, we've, we've got to look a little deeper than just the frequency. And is that why, is that why, like in Washington and in Colorado, we've seen sort of this initial spike in, you know, accidents related to cannabis use, followed by it sort of leveling off after a year or so? Yeah, I think part of it is the, again, I, I think there's going to be a certain background rate of, of accidents that just normally happen. And if there's suddenly a larger population of the, a larger portion of the population is using marijuana, you're going to see it reflected in the, in the, uh, the crash statistics. But I think that the novelty kind of wears off after a while, that there be people that, mm-hmm. you know, once it's legal, were, you know, stigmatized by the, the illegality of it, decide they want to try it, they realize that it's, you know, it's not that big of a deal, and don't smoke much anymore, uh, and it levels off. So I think the novelty will have a spike, and then, you know, it'll just fall back into the background. And it may go up some, uh, because, like I said, there is definitely some impairment from marijuana, but I, don't, I think that you know some of the hysteria may be a little overblown based on some of the studies that show that the you know, properly controlled for demographics, the crash risk is not what uh, some people have been led to believe. Thank you to Dana Larson for joining us today on the Driving Law podcast. Uh, Dana, for pretty much everybody who already knows this, is uh, one of the perhaps loudest voices in activism uh, related to cannabis and and has been sort of a powerful force in the, the team of people across the country who have been working towards cannabis legalization. So thank you so much, Dana, for joining me. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, anytime. I uh, I really appreciate all the work that you've done sort of thus far um, to get us as a country to where we are. There's obviously a long way to go, but I mean, we, we've made significant strides um, towards legalization of cannabis. So that's, um, thank you. Well, well yeah, and I, I think it's, as we know, it's, it's not just about cannabis. It goes much further than that. And we're kind of on the beginning of, of a long journey uh, of really ending prohibition. And and I hope that it goes beyond cannabis and we recognize that the whole war on drugs is really uh, the problem and the solution to most of these problems is just the ending prohibition. Yeah, and I do want to talk to you about that a little later, but um, because we're, we're a driving law-themed podcast, <laughs> I thought I wanted to talk to you a bit about um, cannabis and driving because that's, I think, been... It, it, a large part of the resistance to the legalization is this notion, this this panic that people have that as soon as we legalize cannabis, all of a sudden we're going to have this crisis of cannabis-impaired drivers. And um, I assume that you have some thoughts about that. Well, it's all based on a false premise or multiple false premises. You know, the first false premise is that legalization will result in a lot more people using cannabis and and, uh, and using it in stronger levels. And that's just not the case. Uh, the American states that have legalized have not seen any big increases in, in impaired driving under cannabis or anything like that. And if you look historically, the biggest growth in cannabis use in Canada came during the 60s and 70s 
when the penalties were a six-month mandatory jail sentence for possession of cannabis. So it's not the law that necessarily affects how much people are going to use this substance. Uh, and so legalization, I don't think, is going to lead to more people using it. Do you That's think, the first fallacy. But yeah, yeah go ahead. Um, I, I was going to say, do you think that um, part of the problem is sort of this I- idea that government has that um, maybe is misinformed because of policies like we have in the lower mainland with lots of the police departments not doing arrests for simple possession and just doing no case seizures, that there's not as much cannabis use going on as there in fact is? Or is it more than that? Well, there's a lot of people that use cannabis, uh, and and if anything, legalization will probably lead to people using cannabis in less potent forms. Uh, we see, you know, we, as we move towards legalization, what's the most popular growth thing? CBD, which has got virtually no psychoactivity. That's what people are really interested in, less potent cannabis, mm-hmm. ultimately, uh, rather than uh, than stronger stuff in that way. And uh, And, yeah, I think that a lot of people are already using cannabis, and so the second fallacy that the, that this idea that there's going to be more accidents is that cannabis is is that people using cannabis are dangerous on the road, and that being a cannabis user means you're more likely to have an accident. And the statistics don't really back that up. And what they also don't consider is that a lot of people switch from alcohol to cannabis. Yeah. And when people switch from alcohol to cannabis, uh, that's a more responsible choice and makes them safer in every way. And you don't get a hangover. <laughs> it's just generally well, yeah, and, a more and pleasant experience. And I mean, you're a lot safer on the road as well, and that's uh, that's a big issue. And you know, cannabis can be impairing for drivers. I would never say it can't be. Right? It's normally novice users, first time users, and people who are eating large quantities can be impaired. Yeah. But if the rate that the average person uses it, a few puffs off a joint. Uh, is not impairing, and certainly studies, even studies that show some minimal impairment, it's always vastly less than that caused by legal amounts of alcohol. So they blow this all out of proportion. Uh, and I think it's really just a way of, of demonizing cannabis users in a way for those who, who don't like cannabis and who profit off of prohibition of finding an excuse to continue harass and go after and demonize cannabis users. And that really, I think, is at the heart of a lot of this debate. Well, there's, there's an industry behind, I mean, not just behind impaired driving, but also behind the, the criminalization of, uh, of drugs and the criminalization in particular of cannabis. It's a, it's a money-making industry for a huge number of people. Um, I w- a couple um, last week. Last week, I was interviewed by CBC um, about the um, Drager drug test five thousand, and then when I watched the interview on the news, they were talking about um, the woman uh, Marquita Callias, whose uh, daughter was killed by a drunk driver. Um, she was talking about the drunk driving defense industry, and that's why we have such low rates of convictions, particularly here in British Columbia. But the industry isn't just the people who are defending it; the industry is also the people. Who who are investigating it, who are prosecuting it, who are are making money off selling the equipment that assist in the investigations. And the same is true for for cannabis. It it is very lucrative and a very big industry. And the whole, you know, prison industrial complex around the whole war on drugs is is very lucrative in many ways. And in fact, there's a huge prison strike going on in the U.S. right now because prisoners are fed up being treated like slave labor. And, uh, and, you know, a very disproportionate number of prisoners are there because of nonviolent drug offenses, and there shouldn't be criminalized at all and certainly shouldn't be in jail. And, uh, and so, yeah, there is a big industry, and we're going to see a lot of people, and we've got this new drug testing uh, method now that they're putting out there. That's going to be very lucrative for the companies that produce those products. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there's a real irony here with the legalization that we're getting in Canada that it seems to be coming with a big boost to 
police budgets across the country to enforce legalization. They need more money to enforce legalization than they were needing to enforce prohibition. And that's really absurd and feels to me like they're just sort of trying to buy off the police and get their complicity in legalization by by giving them extra money uh, and quieting them down. But it's really a problem uh, because policing costs have been out of control in Canada for many years. Uh, under Harper, there was actually a big national summit of mayors and, and, and premiers working to try to figure out how to get policing costs down in Canada because they were sucking up all the other aspects of municipal budgets. And now we got legalization of cannabis coming. That should be a great excuse to cut every police force in the country by about 10% or so. But instead, they're all getting a raise to go along with it. And it, it's like we're in Alice in Wonderland. It, it's just upside down. Well, and even with those, you know, those overinflated budgets that they have, they've been, I mean, I've said this before, but really negligent in training officers to deal with this, you know, with this problem, if it is a problem, like if it is true that cannabis impaired driving poses such a significant risk to the public safety, that we need to arm officers with uh, you know, unreliable and questionable technology to detect people who have THC in their systems and then take them off the road and, and give them further examinations to test for impairment and prosecute them um, because they might kill somebody. If, if that's the case, where have the police been all this time that we've we've had cannabis users in Canada and in British Columbia since, you know, since the 60s and before? Why are they not trained, and why have they not been ready long before now? Well, I mean, I think you're an- you're answering the question there. It's because <laughs> this was never really a big deal, and they didn't care about it because it wasn't happening and it wasn't worth focusing on. Yeah, and uh, the only reason they're focusing on it now is to keep keep their jobs for the cops who who used to be enforcing cannabis prohibition in other ways. Yeah, it just I don't know. I I I get really cynical about the whole thing and and maybe that, you know, does me a disservice in the in the public eye or whatever, but I just I I I am so distrustful of this this rhetoric that we need to do something about this when we've done literally nothing about it and we're not in any type of crisis. I mean, even when um when the justice minister Jody Wilson-Raybould announced the official approval of the drag or drug test 5000, she said, you know, impaired driving is a leading cause of death on our roads and highways. But then you turn around and the next week, the messaging is distracted driving is the leading cause of death on our roads and highways. And then the next week, it's speed kills more people on our roads and highways. And they can't even keep their, their number one killer straight. Well, you know, I think your cynicism is well-deserved and well-earned, and that anybody who follows cannabis or drug policy in Canada is very quickly becomes very cynical because we know that they're lying and that a lot of the things they say, they're, not, they're, they're saying it for political reasons, and they're not, they don't believe in their hearts that this is the truth, but they're saying it to deflect or to, to uh, satisfy other lobby groups and other parts of the government. And uh, there's a lot of harm caused by prohibition and caused by the war on drugs. And this focus uh, on, on supposedly impaired cannabis drivers is not really helping the situation and is really a big distraction from what we should be focusing on, which is the harms caused by our government's prohibition. Thanks for tuning in again to another episode of Driving Law. I'm Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation. And if you like our podcast, you can follow it on Twitter. It's got its own Twitter account at Driving Law Pod. 
or you can uh, reach out to us at Acumen Law, uh, VancouverCriminalLaw.com, or give me a call, 604-685-8889, or shoot me an email. My email's on the website, um, and I'm happy to take any of your driving-related questions. Next week, we'll be back with more driving law content, because it's driving law that drives the law. Thank <laughs> you.